everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In the case of Frog slash Paris Green, she was recommended to me by Never Angeline North, Mika, and Jackie S. Paris Green is a figment of the imagination of a non-binary trans person named Frog K. If you're cold, she's cold and you should let her in. Before we get into the conversation, let's talk about how you can support the show. If you'd like to support the show on a monthly recurring basis, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe is the place to go to check that out. If you'd like to drop me a one-time donation, paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe is the place for that. If you'd like to help me as a writer out, you can buy my novel. It's called Tired, and you can find it on Amazon. And if you'd like to help the show in a non-financial way, go ahead and give the show a follow and or a rating at whatever podcatcher you find the show at. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Frog. Okay, so just before we started rolling, uh, I I complimented you on, on the new collection, Fuck Shit, and you mentioned that it is unrepresentative of of your work to an extent, and I think that's where we need to begin because people who are familiar with your work uh, might want to know, and people who are unfamiliar who are going to go for the newest thing are uh, might be thrown off. So let's start there. Absolutely. I think uh, in general, like I've been writing stuff, you know, posting stuff online basically that I write for the last couple of years. And uh, a lot of it, like, there was a long period of trying to determine what I could write and get away with posting online because I'd write stuff that I just felt like this is too dark and weird. And uh, gradually as I became less afraid of my own shadow in that way, I found myself, you know, including more risque or kind of explosively weird and kind of like internally off-putting pieces and like different uh, things I posted online and never having gotten any pushback on it. I just like, I wound up like writing a bunch of stuff, like having a bunch of stuff like that I just had never put up anywhere. And I figured, you know, I could just put all this together and uh, put something out based on that. Uh, My previous stuff is like structurally somewhat similar. Like they tend to be like flash pieces. Like I don't tend to write particularly long, but uh, I'd say in terms of moods, it treats like the, the raw raunchiness, the, the sexuality behind a lot of it is like more subdued. And I wouldn't call that so much a, a difference in like who I am as a person, more just a difference in like what I was choosing to write about at the time. Mm. Uh, yeah, because it, it it starts out with, um, well, I suppose it starts out with pretty pictures of hell, but um, bait really stuck out to me as an as an early sort of scene, structured like <laughs> like a play, and um, I had so much fun with that one. It. I can tell, you know, um, with like the, the actor direction, lots of, uh, you know, Alex smugly. Yeah. Brandon amused Alex flustered sort of thing. Um, I love it. I love doing it. And like, it honestly made me kind of hungry to do more like chamber play kind of stuff. You know, I, I've, I've been coming across that a lot more, um, I guess really since the, the start of my, my digging, like since the start of the show, because after I interviewed Mike Klein, who it's like the third episode, he sent me his 17 pilot fish and I, uh, 
you know, Mike Correo did Smut Maker and then also Cephalo Negativity, these sort of like impossible play type things. But this one is actually possible. <laughs> you know, bait is like something that you could see performed. Um, right. It's just that the, in, in general, one would expect like you either have to make a lot of concessions to a public venue or else like hold it at a very weird venue. Right. Yeah. Like before a punk show in somebody's basement or something. Exactly. But like, uh, yeah, I found myself really enjoying doing that one. And like the ones that came after it, some of them were like purely cathartic. Some of them were like, uh, purely like vent art, like the, the bracketing, like a set of images was entirely vent art based on the death of a friend. And mm. like, uh, a lot of it was just like really intense, like internally emotional stuff that I would have normally just like scribbled out a little poem about and like stuffed in a locker and forgotten about, uh, and I found like exploring stuff like that in the space of like writing was interesting and cathartic to me. That's yeah. I I was sort of kind of getting that too. I'm, I guess you know I make I make no bones about the fact that I'm I'm very new to reading um, contemporary trans authors, and um, you know all already the sort of width width of styles covered is uh i won't say surprising it's not surprising but it's it's interesting to me right like the mm -hmm. the amount of ways that i don't know i don't i guess i guess similar experiences are are covered um is there, interesting there can be, to me there tend to be like a set of like common themes and mm -hmm. images and like experiences certainly but the way people experience them is as radically different as you can get like i think there's a there's a broad spectrum from like just thinking of like friends and colleagues of mine just like from extremely like about it experimental stuff on one end like uh ava hoffman who i've incredibly enjoyed lately uh to uh i mean obviously like my friend jackie just was this very like light novelistic kind of uh mm -hmm. It, calling it fluff would be completely wrong, but like stuff that's like really breezy and readable and accessible to like everybody who comes up to it, like people who have never like had any kind of like you know difficult queer relationship can come to something like Daryl and like come away having learned something. And like there's other things that are like obviously the product of like decades of reading in queer literature and like require that kind of like uh require or at least reward that kind of uh, breadth of reading before approaching them. Like uh, a lot of the more experimental writers that I'm friends with, like I love their stuff, but also it's like, it would be so challenging to recommend it to like an audience that had not read like a lot of trans literature because like they wouldn't know half of what they're going for. Like uh, my friend Never North, uh, their latest project uh, is very like, it, it 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 like the ways it intersects with like trans literature are kind of hard to explain to somebody who hasn't read enough of it, and on its surface level, it has almost like a nursery story kind of vibe. Mm. And it's something much more complex than that. And I don't know, like I, I'm just like I'm in love with the field, like I, I completely am. And like I've seen so much cool shit in it, and like I'm always looking forward to seeing more. And like every other every other like month, I'd say I encounter somebody's work who like is legitimately different from anything I've seen before. Yeah. And I think that's, I think we're really lucky to have that. Um, 
I, Same. I, I will say that um, I've, I've had quite a long discussion with Jackie, I think mostly off, off, uh, off the air about like what trans literature is, um, you know, as a cis person, like trying, trying to like point at something and say, yeah, that's, that's trans literature is hard. Um, especially since the, the first time I really ever encountered it was with Sea Witch. And one of the first things never said when I did the interview was I wanted to write a trans book that isn't, isn't really a trans book. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I'm right. I'm like, and not sure. You know, that is the thing. like, and like, I think we all have this idea of like a trans narrative in our heads and like, it ranges from anything to the, the tawdry and pornographic to like stuff that's entirely for the cis gays. And like the idea that like, I think we have this thing we avoid is like the idea of something straightforward and explicable and like something you boil down into a couple of sentences. Like it doesn't appeal to us all that much. And the ways in which we flee from it, like we flee in a million directions is what it comes down to. And like, I think at a certain point you get tired of fleeing and start like writing stuff that's more straightforwardly about gender and about like uh transness. But like, there's a, there's a definite period of like a good, I mean, for some people, decades where they just don't write anything like that's directly to do with being trans or is like, or in which that's only a theme rather than like the predominant, like overarching, like structure of the work. Mm. And like, for some people, it's not a phase for some people they never, they never write about gender, like in that way for some people, like it goes from like, you know, your first year it's gender, gender, gender. Then like after that, it's like exploring different ways that this experience informs you. And then back to maybe gender, 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 like it's, it seems like something that's different for everybody. And like, I don't know, like, I just, I guess that's just gotten me thinking about like, see which in particular was fantastic having seen it up close. And like, I kind of like, it interests me that never's perspective on it is that they wanted to write like something that wasn't a trans novel because that makes complete sense. But also like, that's, you'd be very surprised to hear that based on the way it's been received. Mm hmm. It's I, it zero percent surprises me to hear that out of never, of course, but like, uh, it's it's like I think to like observe it as a phenomenon, you'd assume like oh, having never read it, you'd assume oh, this is just very much a trans novel, and it's like it's something very much different than that. Yeah, I suppose I don't know how would you even define trans novel, or is it possible? Is it I know it when I see it, or it's definitely an I know it when I see it thing because like my gut answer to that was going to be well it's a novel written by a trans person but that obviously doesn't work because like I know there are very like novelistic writing kind of trans people who aren't particularly interested in trans people as subjects and I know that there are people who write I've known of examples of like competently written trans narratives by cis authors it's rare but it does happen mm -hmm. and it's much rarer than like the attempt which I think should say something but like uh yeah, I think in general, like, you could best define something as a trans work if it... No, that's a poser, isn't it? I suppose if it treats trans themes, but then what are those? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you narrowly define that? Like, you can define it as, like, you know, gender transition or whatever, or social dislocation, or, uh, or uh, a, any, a million other things. Because, like, for one, there's, it's not like there's a uniform trans experience, you know? Like, uh, 
the life that say you know i don't know caitlin jetter has lived is a world different from what i've lived and a world different from what you know jackie or never has lived and uh and all of us you know in our own ways are like not quite that different from each other but still worlds apart and like it's one of those things where like even an individual person can contain multitudes and like certainly a crowd of people like that of people defined by their relationship to you know assigned gender whatever are going to you know be explosively uh diverse in their their perspectives and their experiences right yeah it's um yeah i don't i don't know i think I think when Jackie and I talked about it, we we almost kind of came to the conclusion within ourselves that it was like maybe not super useful to try to, you know, from the outside, attack it, right? Like exactly, exactly. And it's like it's one of those things where like it definitely is useful as a marketing category, mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the ways in which it's become like kind of calcified in use is like does this novel appeal to trans people? Does it speak to the trans experience in some way? Does it involve trans characters? Uh, You know, you wind up getting a set of like marketing bullet points on a work that can characterize it as trans or not trans in that way. And uh, that's something that I think has a, has legs right now, but I don't know how long that'll last. Mm -hmm. It seems like a very cyclical thing where like, it seems likely that in five years, the market will be kind of saturated on, you know, you know the, the the next trans novel and then another five it might be very interested in more like uh certainly the moment we're in now where there's a lot of genuinely fantastic novels by trans authors coming out in like big presses is like not unprecedented but like it's also not necessarily going to last forever you know like and it's not as though any of those people are going to wander in the woods it's just i don't expect the uh I don't expect the lot the cultural ladder on the trans novel to remain down forever. Mm. I don't think it's going to be like at, at you know arm, at arm's reach for everybody forever. And like, I think in a way that's not a terrible thing because it, as much as I love many of the people I'm I'm talking about here, like I'd completely despair if like everything every trans person wrote looked exactly like that forever. Right. But something enduring as a marketing category tends to produce. Right. Yeah, it seems dangerous to genreify, you know, writing absolutely. by trans people. Oh, um, absolutely. Definitely self-limiting. Was was it you who was tweeting the other day about genre? Um It was. And like yeah. I'm not I, I I think it was one of those like almost shower thoughts kind of things where like I don't know if I could back it up, like but I could certainly just restate it that like I think that a a lot of uh a lot of entertainment right now is kind of amb- ambivalent on the idea of genre and ambivalent on the idea of like uh, marketing by genre where there are other tools for them to market by like shared themes, shared moods, their shared images. Those are pretty easy to categorize and pretty easy to like sort people based on. Whereas genre is more of a living tradition of like, you know, peers and readers and uh, you know, customs and traditions within a genre like uh i'm more interested in like micro genre mm-hmm. another thing about it than about like either deconstructing genre as a whole or like trying to cleave to the traditional model like i'm interested in like the micro genre of like i'm a bit of a collector of them like uh 
there was this microgenre called wing fiction for or wing fic for a while in fan fiction communities, which was most rooted in Star Trek, but also involved in other shows. It was like gay fan fiction that involved one of the characters sprouting beautiful wings and being ashamed of themselves, and the other one comforting them. It's it's like it's the strangest thing. It was like, it was like explosively popular in the seventies and then like kind of fell off over the years. And there's other like little micro genres unified by themes. Like uh, I've read at least four like science fiction stories about like uh, somebody being afraid of uh, of gridiron football becoming America's national pastime, and writing about oh god, what if this actually happens? Is America going to become hopelessly violent and insane? And Rollerball is probably the best example of that micro genre. Hmm. And like I think if you cleave these genres into tiny little like slices of genre and look at like people who are inspired by each other's works and writing similar things and like getting them closer and closer to cultural visibility, you wind up with like interesting little stories that don't necessarily go anywhere, but like are neat to think about. And like one of the micro genres I'm particularly drawn to lately is the micro genre of like military, kind of like a, I don't know exactly how to describe it, like hyper violent writing by like trans people about like, either about transness or involving trans characters uh, with like military, like a, like kind of like hyper warfare oriented settings. Like a, a lot of the stuff on surfaces that I've been most recent, like mm-hmm. surface magazine online uh, that I've been most recently interested in has been like in that general vein and uh, the, the public face of it, uh, the, you know, essentially the person who runs most of the show uh, Mika is like, a master of that and like it's obviously something that's like if you'd ask any of us we'd probably say with like oh we started writing this way because of x author and mm. like if you trace it far enough i think like i think that be- the origin point of that is probably uh porpentine's uh living fucking creatures mm. which is fantastic i should link you to it uh but uh yeah i just I, I find it very enthusiastic about forming these little connections and like seeing what i can learn from them rather than trying to uh categorize things like seriously in a in a kind of like marketing oriented kind of way you know right i've been i haven't really thought about that type of phenomenon via literature but i'm very interested in it when it comes to music especially electronic music right like oh, yeah. the, so much of an electronic music and i love it for that the the electron or the 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 evolution between like gabber and like terror core and like each little segment and just like what it takes to become you know like where is the line the razor thin line between gabber and hard style and like sometimes it's time and sometimes it's tempo um and sometimes it's just like the samples that they use like oh well you know you can't use samples from animated television shows because then it's no longer whatever like it has to be 80s action movies like if you use an animated television show it's something completely different right um, and i i love that i think people get you know i i interact with people and always have um who get kind of like bugged by it right um even like musicians um like oh man don't we don't make funk metal we just make music and it's like okay yeah but like so does eminem right and like eminem and music and like they all are making different kinds of music and clearly you're making different kinds than other people right yeah i can't be like oh man you like primus i also like music you should listen to bone thugs and harmony 
<laughs> God. I mean, it's possible to like both, but it's a ridiculous sort of thing. Um, exactly. But I mean, also that that same sort of thing, like, you know, I can't tell you how many television shows I've been recommended because I like Twin Peaks that are like mm. nothing like that. Like what, mm -hmm. whatever micro genre you could call Twin Peaks, like I haven't seen anything that I would recommend to somebody because they like Twin Peaks, you know? Oh God. Yeah. Same. I think like in that respect, there's some artists who are just kind of sui generis. Like uh, David Lynch is a great example of that in cinema and, and television. Like, a lot of people do stuff like inspired by him, but it's always their own thing. Like nobody can exactly imitate his formula and like anybody who tries usually fails. Like the most interesting people I've seen in the context of Lynch are like people like uh, Ikahara who loves Lynch and likes like pastiching him and likes uh, adapting things from his work into like his own like series. Uh, but like even that is like very, you'd have to be very into like certain kinds of anime to actually appreciate like you know what he's doing with lynchian kind of motifs and like say uh utena or penguin drum or whatever like it's it's one of those things where like there's definitely artists out there who are just kind of doing their own thing and are hard to categorize right which i think makes the sort of anti-genre crowd like it's good fodder for them right because you can be like well what would you call lynch it's like well i guess i'd call him lynchian <laughs> But, exactly but that's it, thing. you know and and yeah that's true you know like he is a genre of himself you know that uh but kind of speaking of of that i noticed getting back to your own writing i, I noticed in fuck shit there was um like strict machine and there was another one that was sort of like very science fiction oriented um mm -hmm. that like uh i think strict machine is also maybe one of my favorite pieces in it um because of the world building in it and and this idea of um i don't know a sort of queer cyberpunk sort of thing where it wasn't in strict machine but it was in another one of the the ones that used the the mulching mulcher term Oh yeah, like I like I like those little touches that it builds towards shared universes, like uh, like like when's Ansible, like the idea that like there's shared mechanics even if they're not like shared timelines or whatever, and like mm -hmm. one of them is like this big idea that's been floating in my head forever that will probably turn into something bigger at some point of just like a post scarcity future sort of inspired by but in direct opposition to Ian Banks' uh, culture series, where uh, what you're doing is like taking a humanity and trying to make everything in the world out of like living beings out of you know essentially out of meat out of human meat mm -hmm. and you know the idea that you could just have a a job for a while as like a human like organ factory or a, a, a living womb the size of a city or a door or whatever like and these can be valid occupations you can have and then like have your body mulch and then reborn as something else mm -hmm. like it's just something that like there's a few touches like that that are like consistent throughout like little stories I write. And like one of these days I'd really like to put together like a, a sort of like semi-serious like f timeline tree of like my different works. Mm. Just exploring which of them share different like events, which of them share like 
uh, different technologies, which of them share, et cetera, et cetera. And like just exploring the ways in which characters and events are similar across uh, the boundaries of the story. Uh, as far as Strict Machine goes, that one was like, that one kind of came to me in the car as the, as some of the best ones do. And like, I loved writing it. And like, I loved uh, just the tone of it, the idea of this kind of like, almost like, I mean, I want to say Savage Love, even though I hate Savage Love, but like that tier of letter directed at like an advice columnist from like this person who got assassinated, but it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I love that. And like, I loved writing it and I want to like return to that like whole universe because like there were a couple of things in fuck shit. I think that both uh, worked with that. And I want to go back there. I always want to go back there. Like some of my tweets are even about that. Like it's, it, uh, just it's fascinating to me the idea of cr- creating this like Cronenbergian like disgusting universe in which people are happy and that's like and that's something that like a, a friend of mine has pointed out like is a recurring thing of my work is like I like constructing worlds that are repellent and plots that are repellent and events that are repellent and even people that are repellent and have people who for whatever reason are completely content with the way things are like uh that's one of the things that come back to again and again is like i it's not necessarily how i ex- explore the world myself like i don't like the idea of you know responding to you know fascism climate change uh the various horrible things america is doing to people all over the world and domestically all the time and i don't like responding to that with like just glib acceptance but also I know there's a part of me that tries to mm. the writing is a way of exploring that. Like what part of me is trying to respond to this by just saying, eh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're talking, I, I think about like the Cenobites, right? Like their whole thing is just, there's no longer a difference between pleasure and pain. And just like, I just need extreme experience and Mm -hmm. that that's how i enjoy myself and i can kind of see a post late stage capitalism where you know just everybody's pumped full of whatever they need to be pumped full of to sort of not worry about what's going on and yeah it's just the idea that like you know walking down the street and the person next to you can be vaporized and it's just like it's tuesday you yeah, know, I mean, like in one, another one of my stories, in fact, like uh, one of the there's this discussion of like something called Mosquito Mange, which I borrowed from Star Control, which borrowed itself from, a, you know, Roadside Picnic ultimately. But like the way it was implemented there was like some some manner of like experimentation with like space time or whatever resulted in just pockets that would crush parts of your body uh, and horribly kill you. And it being all over the news, kind of being the part of the the analog of COVID that was going on at the time mm. still is obviously. Uh, but like just this kind of glibness towards like seeing people walking their dogs without any kind of like protection from this horrible like space time force. And like just the idea that there's a very slim chance that like that, that would just turn the dog inside out or turn the person inside out. And like uh, just responding to that with like horror, but also like indifference mm-hmm. and like, the horror and indifference and like is one thing I like treating. And so is like active enjoyment of hellish things. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the perverse inclination to like be in hell and say, this is good actually. 
Right. Yeah. I I feel like I've seen the meme of somebody being like beaten by a cop and just screaming harder daddy, you know, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, what are you going to do? Like at this point, you know, you, you, you have found yourself in a situation that like the only, only way to get through it is to pretend that it's an enjoyable experience, which yeah, God knows that happens. Um, a funny thing that happened when I was reading that uh, Strict Machine and then Studies After a Landscape, I think is the other one I was um, mm-hmm. re- really into, is I was looking um, in bait. Uh, one of the characters is wearing a gaff, which is something I'd never heard of before. So I Googled it and I realized what it was. And I said, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, but then anytime I came across a term uh, in fuck shit that I did not recognize, I Googled it. But because some of them are made up, I just... Uh, ended up googling like and, and coming up with weird things like wet dom which in the context of the world like makes sense but i was like i don't know that could be a kink thing i'm not aware of like maybe it's i don't know and came up with a whole bunch of n- nothing funny but then um you know the the idea of mulching and i was like okay so maybe that's something so i was like typing in mulching and just coming up with a bunch of landscaping stuff and then i was like well it seems like it's related to death what if i type mulching death and then i was just uh uh that's very unfortunate to google mulching death and then you know not be expecting some you know anything other than some kink thing to show up it just was a whole bunch of gore pictures so (laughs) I, i found that very funny that i like naively walked myself into seeing terrible images on the internet for the first time since like 2006 oh gosh i'm i'm genuinely sorry about that like i i i think like the the actual point of reference i have from mulching like internally is it is something like the recycling tanks in alpha centauri if you've ever played that like there there's a little quote in every technology in that game and one of them for the one for recycling tanks is uh something to the effect of it is every citizen's final duty to go into the tanks and become one with all the people. And it's a very early game quote that's kind of establishing one of the factions is this kind of like totalitarian hellscape. And the idea being that like in many of the factions, the recycling tanks are just used to break things down into their you know component materials. And in this faction, it's also used on human bodies. Mm. And uh, in this case, the mulching case is like, you're taking the consciousness out of the body, shunting it out in some way, and then turning the body to useful materials. Because at that point, you're done with it. Hmm. And like a dead body is like essentially like the idea of mulching is like that it's like a colloquialism for something that would probably have a more formal term in any of these universes. But uh, it's consistently used like mulching and also the idea of a mulcher, a mulcher being a job which involves mulching. Hmm. I like that a lot. One of the things, I guess I can't think of a good example of 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 somewhere else in literature that i'd come up with it but i like the idea and i feel like i've come across it before of somebody just like picking a word and and making it a job mm-hmm. and i got god i wish i could think of an example um but it, it kind of makes me think of like how i view television writing where like especially especially Twin Peaks like season two where I feel like somebody just had an idea and then had to retrofit the idea into the series to make sense. Um, but I like that idea that that you can kind of take something very ordinary. You know, 
a kind of bad example, I guess, or maybe a, a an occult one is is Coheed and Cambria, the band, uh, because they're a concept band and because they're writing a story based on song lyrics and or song lyrics based on a band, is you have things that just like there's a song lyric that says "Man, your jackhammers," which in the context of the universe of the Coheed and Cambria story is just a type of battleship but in a, a song from 2003 that fits in the sort of emo framework it's just a very strange line of song mm-hmm. and that's just an aesthetic that I like like I don't know it's a weird tangent and I don't know if I'm articulating myself very good and so I'm like also racking my brain to try to think of like um, an example to to make up to better illustrate it and I can't do it um, I think there's just a general, like, it's one of those things where, like, I, I definitely get what you mean, where, like, and, and I also think in some forms of art, like, uh, in writing, the, for example, in science fiction, it's completely accepted that you'll, like, take a, a common everyday word and just use it to mean something else, or, like, invent an entirely new word to refer to something you have to refer to in the story. So much so there's been, like, old gimmick stories based on that, like, uh, and memes, you know, formed around that from the fan, fandom culture. Uh but I think like there's less license to do it in music, and like the only case I can think of like there like I think other than like I'm not that terribly familiar with a lot of musicians who have successfully like had their own jargon that turned into like something respectable in mainstream culture. I think like the only examples I can think of are like George Clinton and to a degree uh, Sun Ra. Mm. Sure, yeah, I suppose it's I guess it's not easy to do that in funk, but it's a it's a uh, you can expect to find it a lot in in funk yeah like just basically a, a, a vocabulary of personal invention is accepted in some areas and completely not in others and like one of the fortunate things about science fiction is like as somebody who does speculative fiction primarily like i have complete license to just go on like little world building tangents and like to come up with words that mean things i want them to and only what i want them to in the context of the story and just expect everybody to be on my level Mm-hmm. And like, it's funny because like a lot of the the more literary people that are close to me, they, they have nowhere near that license to do that. And like, it's it's definitely interesting to look at like how differently they write because of that. Because like, if somebody isn't on the same page with you in more literary writing rather than more genre writing, like that's usually your problem. Mm-hmm. If that happens occasionally in like more genre writing, like speculative fiction, that's completely the reader's problem. And that fascinates me. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about Sea Witch is that it starts off with a, a cast list, but also like there for a cosmology um, mm-hmm. that allows for people to be living within people and also next to people, a very sort of like panentheistic sort of um way of existing that at the time i described as cozy and i still think of it as cozy but um i think i think that's that that cozy word um i think i have a bad definition for it or maybe like a broken definition for it because i feel like strict machine and and studies after a landscape like also hit that for me like i could see that honestly like there are definitely worlds in which like what we're witnessing is kind of some of the worst that happens to people. Yeah. 
And I could see a value in that. Like, in particular, like, I think they, they both also come from the idea, like, the idea of this universe of, like, just living flesh everywhere is something I find oddly comforting and, like, couldn't tell you exactly why. Like, it's a way of, like, exploring, like, the kind of, like, you know, the Star Trek utopianism of my childhood through a lens of, like, adulthood while still holding on to the idea that something more than the world we're living in is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, I don't know. I, I like that. I like the idea of, like, the possibility of, like, Im- not just containing but embodying multitudes, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Temperature strikes me as, as we're working through it. Like, the if everything is made of flesh, right, everything's, like, 98 degrees the whole time. Like, everything's mm-hmm. just kind of, like, you no longer are worrying about climate because everything is just flesh. <laughs> everything is fle- yeah. flesh-temperatured. Yeah, yeah, and also like presumably, if you need cold flush, you can get it colder. If you need hot flush, you can get it hotter. It's biology is miraculous that way. Um, we, another thing I noticed, I suppose it would be impossible not to, is all of the uh, the quotes before stories and fuck shit and uh, those I had so much fun with. There's a couple of them that are lyrics or genuine quotes, and most of them are just invented. Oh, okay. Well, then that that's good because I was like, aside from Rush, I'm pretty sure I don't know any of this. <laughs> like, Let me have a quick look and fuck shit real quick because I could uh, I could tell you which of these are actual quotes, mostly from song lyrics, honestly, uh, and which of these are uh, just straight up made up. So just having a quick look here. Uh, okay yeah the sperber one is uh that's klaus nomi uh the one for bait is fictional the one for the american model the american medical association is fictional as well and also my favorite in the whole thing any who denies the finality of zone castration in his heart is not yet a eunuch and must be governed with an iron hand i fucking <laughs> love writing that yeah i and Rush is a uh, Rush is a musician. Uh, I, I think a, a songwriter as well. Uh, uh, I think somebody else is best known for covering that song. But like, uh, yeah, it's it's just a a songwriter from long ago. Hmm. Belfour is a fictional person, as is Tedesco. And yeah, like I think most of these are, uh, yeah, most of these are fictional. And I just had the idea of making up like little fictional. Uh, epigraphs for each uh, little story and uh i just rolled with that for that particular one and like i don't think i'll do it again because i think over the course of like you know a collection with of like 50 stories i think incredibly obnoxious right but like uh it was fun for that little one though i can't remember who i was thinking or who i was talking to about epigraphs and how i generally just sort of skim them like i don't really give them the weight that i feel like they're supposed to have Maybe it was Ava. I think that's. I think. I think skimming them is honestly appropriate. Hmm. Why is that? Uh. Well, because like, as weightily as they might be intended. Oh, I've got a kitten. Uh. Uh. As weightily as they might be intended, they're kind of intended as more of a uh. Uh. Mood-setting device, and if they're executed well, they don't need to hold a lot of weight. They just need to. Mm 
strike an opening sort of note and then like linger in the air for a little while and then be gone. Uh, the idea that you'd have to like have an entire story resting on an epigraph is very, uh, I, I can't see that working for anybody writing that way. Sure. Well, cause it, it, uh, it bets a lot on the reader understanding the, uh, the outside context, right? Oh, absolutely. Also, like, I completely apologize if it turns out that the word I'm looking for is epigram and I've been leading us both to talk <laughs> I can never remember which is which. That's why I said quote. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, clever. Yeah. Um, that's what you get when you charisma your way through high school and don't learn very much. <laughs> Same. Um, yeah, now I'm now I'm really stuck on on the uh the American Me- Medical Association one. It feels so real. It feels like I could very easily grab that out of some weird um like n- middle ages like gnostic remnant that's like hanging around in the 1300s or something i just i just i i, I like i wound up like exact like building exactly enough of a character for this like fictional quote author to like pin that on and i think that's actually exactly that's more or less exactly correct the idea that he was like some kind of medieval byzantine uh you know authority on something or other and uh you know just trying to write about this like this is like both a a literal and metaphorical statement yeah like both both like trying to talk about how one manages eunuchs and also how one uh how one manages people in general something like that like and it's one of those things where like it would be very difficult to find something that struck the exact mood I wanted, but very easy to just write fucking whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it's, it's definitely a dangerous power and I don't expect to like do a lot of false epigraphs in the future, but like it was, it was very fun when I did it. I think, I think it's a good skill to have. I think that and, and you know, the art of writing a good blurb is, are, are two similar and uh, just good talents to have. Like, not super applicable out, outside of very specific situations, I suppose. But, you know, mm-hmm. as as much as I'm at times baffled and bewildered by a, a very obtuse blurb, I'm also fascinated by them. Oh, yeah. I know of several people who've apparently had the practice of, like, having essentially a form blurb for everyone they blurb. Like, just sending in the same thing and... Mm anyone ever notices and i don't think anybody ever does that's good and, uh, there's also like i've known of a couple of cases of people being asked to blurb like friends of mine being asked to blurb things that by people they don't know and books they don't really care to read and that's always a little awkward mm. yeah that's fun yeah like it's one of those things where like some of my some of the people i know like very much value their privacy and the idea of being hit up by a random person to blurb a work of theirs, like not to discourage us as a practice at all. Like I think the idea of like asking someone to blurb your book is like fine, but like certain people certainly do not like it. And uh, it's just a very strange like spectrum of opinions where some people I know of like have been asked to blurb things so often they've kind of gotten bored of it. And some people have asked, have been asked to blurb things and not wanted to so often they've just kind of taken up a blank policy and not doing it at all. Mm. It's. I don't know how I'd approach it myself. I've never asked. I've never been asked to blurb a book. I've been asked one time. I told him I would do it, and it's been like three years. 
<laughs> so I don't think I'm going to. And I had no idea. It was, it was it was very early on in my doing this show. So I was still like getting used to non-professorial people reading my writing at all and getting used to the idea that people were taking my opinions seriously enough uh, to want them printed on a book it was much for me at that time. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, I, I think even at this stage of my life, when I've been doing this for years, I'd still have a bit of trepidation of being asked to blurb something, I think. Um, to, to sort of... Uh take a, a right hook from here i i found uh the choice to have a whole bunch of your stuff um hosted on itch.io to be interesting i'd love to talk about that actually yeah like uh a lot of my approach to it has been like i started out putting things up on gumroad you know primarily collections of glitch poetry and uh i did a I swerved on Gumhunt Road and I'm not entirely sure why. Something to do with their adult content policies rubbed me the wrong way, I think. Hmm. Uh, but uh, in particular, my approach to like publishing almost exclusively like self pub via uh, digital distribution is like it's something that's inspired by friends of mine who do similar things. Uh, who will like I don't know if anybody like off the top of my head like other than other than say Porpentine and like she's always like. 10 steps ahead of everybody else in these things <laughs> but i don't know anybody who's like put out who's routinely put out like compilations of short stories on digital distribution and i know it happens i know people put out individual short stories in digital distribution and like put them out like for a small fee and like i don't want to say that i've invented this because i know other people are doing it but like i noticed at the time uh say sporazine came out uh that this was a viable digital platform for releasing you know short fiction and I had just enough shops to put together PDFs and I figured I can just put together like PDFs of my different stories and like start uh, and start like putting them up, pay what you want. And like the idea of like also on a certain level, the idea of like having a set price for my works actually has always sat a little ill with me because I don't love the idea of like I grew up in a household that was constantly like, you know, pirating movies like dubbing dubbing tapes from Blockbuster and that kind of thing. Hmm, wow. Uh, getting like pirated VHSs from family members. And like, it was, there was an ethos in the house that I grew up in that like, wasn't necessarily like, oh, we don't have to pay for things. It's like, we can't pay for things, but we still have a right to have access to culture. Hmm. Uh, I've had this general mentality ever, ever since I was young that like, I think there's a positive right to access to culture. And it, I think even at the point, like, obviously don't tell anybody who ever publishes me this, but like, even at the point at which, like, if I'm ever like publishing anything in print, which, you know, necessarily implies like, uh, you know, investment of capital and therefore, you know, a price point, uh, I wouldn't be mad if somebody stole my work or pirated it even like, it, it's just one of those things where like, I feel like it's part of a, it's part, part of the price of doing business and be like, I want people to read what I'm doing. And I feel like people have more of a right to read what I'm putting out there, read the range of things that are being put out there by people like me than I do to collect, you know, 50 cents on that. And certainly like having this like upfront and saying upfront, like you can pay what you want 
is kind of a best of both worlds situation because some people do want to pay for what they're reading and they want to like support what I'm doing. And I always appreciate that. But I also don't want to say, say to somebody like, you want to read my collection of short stories? Give me your last $4. Yeah. Like it's a nightmare to me. Like I, I like the idea of people paying what they can. And if they don't, if they can't or don't want to pay for it, just downloading and going on with their lives. Yeah. Well, cool. That's, I like that. I was not aware that you could just upload PDFs yeah. to that platform, yeah. which is, which is cool. I wasn't until a couple of years ago, honestly. Like I was, I, I genuinely thought of it as primarily games distribution like platform. And I suppose it still is, but like I've seen so much cool work go up on itch.io in the last like couple of years. And it's not something I was exactly on the ground floor of, but like, it's something I was, pretty early on and like people have increasingly been using it as a digital distribution platform and i i love it for that i love like everything i've seen out of like trans artists on that like weird little website yeah yeah look at that book category look at all those books so so i will say and yeah for whatever reason self-publishing at all anything beyond like posting some poems or or a very short piece on like neutral spaces i'm so Mm -hmm. self-conscious about um like editing i guess like Mm. for as much as there is that is problematic about the gatekeeper like I'd like to have that separation between me and the reader that it was like, but that person said it was okay to come out. Like that person said, we're done. You know, like I need somebody to, to look at it and be like, yes, they are ready. I think like definitely self pub world world loses out on a little bit by like the, the low stakes nature of it means that hiring an editor independently would be unrealistic. And the absence of any such figure at all is not necessarily positive. You know, like, uh, if I was like, say to, if I was to offer somebody, you know, going rates to edit something, I'd lose money for one. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is like, if I didn't like what they say, I could, I could tell them to go pound sand. Like I, and like, I think a lot of people have this very adversarial relationship to editing that isn't necessarily merited. If they're, if it doesn't, if at least it, at least if it doesn't involve like some kind of institutional access, which often editing is wrapped up in. Mm-hmm. I, I've I've loved the stuff I've done with like various people as editors, and uh, I view it more as a form of like artistic collaboration, trying to create the best uh, work I can out of the raw material of what I've done. And like, I hate the layers of institutional access that go along with that. I hate how frequently, like, in order to get a second professional eye on what you're doing and a close read on what you're doing to you know correct little mistakes and so on, you're functionally dealing with somebody who like cuts you a check. Mm-hmm. It's it's like I think a lot of the capitalism leaves like the world of literature and art extremely disordered. Right. Yeah. I I think of the uh, the line from the Ed Harris Jackson Pollock movie where they ask him, "How do you know when a painting's done?" And he's like, "How do you know when you're done having sex?" Which <laughs> also like as a cis man, like I, well, I know I know when I'm finished. Thank thank you very much. There's there's really no question there. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, I, it's much more of an open-ended question, right? It's just like when I'm satisfied with it. And obviously exactly. if I become unsatisfied, then I scrap it. But like, 
I don't know. And just like I was reading an indie book recently, a physical indie book that had at least one typo in it. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. so what are, so what are we doing then? Like why are we putting these on paper? Like I know it's easy to miss that. And my my wife reads novels all the time that come out from imprints of big fives and she's like, well, there's one, there's a typo and she's got an English degree and went for you know, with the idea of being an editor. So maybe I'm also answering my own question here, but, um, you know, it's just, uh, I guess it's just part of the larger question of like, what are we as, you know, this anti-capitalist future of literature do with the medium? Right. Like, it's hard to imagine like, it's hard to imagine how things will shake out, but also like, as far as like, as far as typos go, as far as like the base, like the very grunt work of editing goes, uh, I find that like a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm being distracted by a kitten. Head, <laughs> cuddle me. Uh, but like a lot of people working in the Indies these days are like functionally one step removed from what they used to call a vanity press, mm-hmm. you know, like, you're sending a book in to be published and the work of the publication is primarily just setting the book and like then printing it and sending you copies to sell it um, a markup. And uh, the whole uh, proposition of that used to exist of like trying to shape this book into something marketable to shape it into something uh, that endures that sells is no longer really in the cards for a lot of people in the Indies. And uh, like a lot of like, the pulp model has fundamentally changed from one that is like uh, grind out pulp and get it published uh, on the cheap to uh, grind out pulp and publish it yourself, basically. Or at least sell it yourself. Like if, if whether or not you publish it yourself, like, right. Uh, I know a lot of, uh, a lot of the profits for uh, a lot of the trans indie darlings lately have been, well, primarily, as a result of self-distribution rather than like anything the publisher does like there are exceptions obviously mm-hmm. especially recently but like a lot of the basically everything that got big before like 20, 2018 or so i'd say like i'd say probably made as much money for the author through things that weren't a sales contract as this were through them right yeah i you know i uh... I have, I guess, a complicated set of feelings about it, too, because, like, you know, on on the one hand, um, you know, the Vanity Press thing is a pretty valid criticism, but also, like, you know, some of my favorite books of all time have come out through presses that you could call, you know, one step removed from a Vanity Press. So, like... Completely no shade to Vanity Presses right. at this point in history. Like the 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 pejorative element to it is definitely kind of a holdover from a pre- previous period of literature sure i genuinely don't think there's a any shame in like even the idea of paying to have your book published and then try to sell it yourself like that's that is so common these days that i think the stigma behind it has almost vanished sure yeah i the thing i guess i wish i would see more from some indie presses and i'm not even thinking of any specifically that i'm not saying like just in general is more of a desire to try to sell copies 
mm-hmm. which sounds obvious, but, um, you know, like, I, f- I feel like you as a publisher and like right now on my Patreon is, is a list or is a, is a subscriber goal for me starting writing the rapids, the small press. So like, I'm thinking about this where your money where is where my mouth is, but like, um, right. you know, like, I feel like you have a responsibility at that point. Like, yes, I know that even people who get published through big fives, like have in their contracts like you have to have a twitter account so you can tweet about your book like you you marketing your work is part of the deal um but also um like that's the only reason after Lindsay ellis got in a whole bunch of trouble about ray and the last dragon that she kept her twitter account open it's like i have to i literally have to have a twitter account so i can tweet about my book or or my contract is void (laughs) What a what a nightmare! Like the idea that they 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 wouldn't even do that for you, right? They wouldn't even like maintain a presence for you online so people see your books. You have to do that yourself. Is just they have to have the money for it. It just seems like skin flint shut. Right, and I agree. But however, I can at least walk into a Barnes and Noble and find a Lindsay Ellis book. You True. Know? Um, and I don't know, I don't know what it takes. I don't know, like maybe, maybe distribution is, is the, 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 the blockage, you know, between walking into my local bookstore and buying something, um, by some of my friends and not. Um, so like maybe that's where we need new something. Maybe we don't need more indie presses. Maybe we need more indie distribution, but I I suppose I don't know. I, I wish I did. Like, I wish I was more well-versed on that kind of thing because, like, the subject kind of fascinates me and, like, the general evolution of, like, American publishing from, like, uh, a sort of pyramidal structure of, like, authors that are highly compensated on top and authors, you know, grinding out a, a pauper's wage on the bottom, like, has transitioned to this completely, like, detached apex where, like, certain people are kind of IP factories and everybody mm. else is, like, basically working for exposure right or only slightly better than exposure like uh i think a lot of the the most exciting people in literature right now functionally have to have other jobs Mm -hmm. and this extends like way farther up the food chain than i think people imagine like uh like everybody everybody that i've talked about i think either has a different job or like has financial support like from outside of their from outside of their living situation like i think there's i don't know like if there's anybody out there like actually just supporting themselves entirely on their writing or uh on their patreon from their writing in the trans community that i know of like there might be people out there who are but like there's very few of them and mm-hmm. yet we have like thousands of authors that are you know world-class world-class authors like it's it's certainly not a a defect of skill that causes this and it's not a defect of marketability it's just a defect of like just a defect of like distribution of resources i think mm-hmm. yeah a, a defect of desire of the people who could could do it right exactly um gosh this this cat has been all over me for the last 10 minutes i'm so sorry it is I'm delightful to watch you wrestle with with the cat i, I wish we had a video component but we do not and uh everybody else just has to 
has to deal with with the theater of the mind of you having a cat crawling all over you as you're making very intelligent the statements for the benefit of the audience at home her name is maya and she's a black cat and she's very fluffy she's very fluffy yes i can confirm um mm -hmm. to that point you know i suppose another thing that keeps me personally from doing a lot of digital stuff that isn't just like one-off stories or whatever is just like i just i, I i'm old-fashioned in that i feel like if possible a book should be read on paper and i you know. feel that i know a lot of people like that and i eventually do want to like start doing zine-ish kind of stuff so like that's more feasible for people but like i'd also i'd love to get stuff into print like through a vanity press at some point uh but also like I, I genuinely i genuinely think like there's high bars to entry for like even getting shit on paper unfortunately mm -hmm. there's certain inherent like investments of capital that are involved that make like say just printing out a run of a story and giving it away it, it makes it a, a loss leader at best mm -hmm. yeah like uh i looked into like say zine printing for the story that i, I might be reading later and uh it'd be on the order of like 60 dollars for 100 copies and like that's not terrible but like it's also not something i could reasonably just do to give away 100 copies of it you know mm -hmm. yeah especially if you're shipping any of it anywhere Mm -hmm. right because then that's multiplied by like four dollars or whatever a, a package depending on weight i guess i guess if it's scenes it's probably cheaper but i couldn't tell you but that that doesn't count the the packaging which isn't expensive but isn't free so yeah exactly you know like it is it is hard to you know even even for the small presses that do work to make sure people buy books and and put out good products and have quality editing teams and stuff like that like it's, it is a challenge to make a profit off of a book you know mm -hmm. uh so it's it's tough it's tough it's tough um tough stuff all around right why did we choose to do this with our lives this seems like a bad idea god only knows i feel like if i could do anything else i would yeah i feel like i feel like if i had any other form of art in me i'd do that instead and mm. if i if i could work in nine to five easily i probably would <laughs> but like uh but uh yeah like and part of it is also that like genuinely i think there's something older and in a way more important than the capitalist drive to make money to make a living to support yourself with two hands uh, there's this nobility to the pursuit of art that I hopelessly believe in, even in the face of like seeing how corruptible art is. Uh, I genuinely believe that people have been making culture, for lack of a better word, making art, making music, poetry, which was originally part of music, uh, stories, which were originally set to music, like, entertainment and enrichment and ennoblement for one's fellow human being has been part of how people interact with the world and get by in the world and live as human beings since time out of mind in every culture we know of like there in every culture we know of there are storytellers and there are stories and uh it feels a little bit you know conceited to say that's the tradition i work in because obviously you know i i you know come from I come from a house like anybody else, 
But uh, I think that's what I aspire to rather than, you know, trying to support myself, trying to make money, trying to scramble for, you know, number one bestseller or whatever. I want to tell stories and I want to make nights like these, you know, the, the dead of winter or, you know, the, the dead of fall or whatever. I want to make them less cold and lonely as people have been doing since time out of mind. That's a lot of what I'm doing. The story I'm going to read for you now is God chose violence in every part of his design. It was first published on surfaces.cx about a year and a half ago. And uh, my friends like it a lot, and I'm hoping you will too. All night bitch knows is how to hate a motherfucker. She learned it whatever she suckled at instead of a titty. Nashed by huge packs of dog-wolf hybrids every single day in a special boot camp to build up Mithridatic immunity to crushing, piercing, grinding weapons. Her instructor at the boot camp was wolf-dog hybrid. She learned their language and mastered their combat style instantly. She has no further use for anything on four legs. Her weak points are all covered in the latest armor. Don't worry about it. Prismatic blades ring her major arteries with extra falsy blades for arteries she doesn't need anymore. You better believe her dick is a deadly weapon. Special modifications allow her, allow her to bioregenerate Sabo and Flechette come, easily capable of defeating up to five centimeter thick ceramic plate armor. It gives her confidence, but she can never know a lover's touch. No sweat to Nightbitch. Nightbitch is deployed in the Daytona Flesh Rupping Zone, home of the Daytona Flesh Ruppers, home of the home of those living shops of God's ransom light, home of the ectopresence, home of the Daytona viral sentience. Walmart after Walmart after Walmart, each equipped with two fully functional reanimator cenotaphs. She stops for a cigarette and slops fresh flesh onto the, her bones to replace the parts flying knives or the flesh rippers peeled off. Night, bitch. Tell me about the light, guys. Control? Control. No good. President says we can't torture him. Night, bitch. Fucking pussies. Control. President says it's physically impossible. Says all they feel is pleasure all the time. Night, bitch. Fucking pussies. Time dilation sets in and permanent gets darker. Something is stirring over in Sporting Goods Alpha, deep in Walmart 7. Night bitch stubs out her cigarette and her bionic tongue. Integrated razors cut the ashes into their component molecules to aid digestion. Night bitch. Control, I got contact in Sporting Goods Alpha. Control, you're cleared to engage. Night bitch. Can I knock that bitch down? Control. Negative, night bitch. You know you gotta leave Sporting Goods alone. Try luring it to housewares. Night bitch. Fuck you. You never let me do anything fun. Control. Please don't tell anyone I made you mad. Tight burst into Sporting Goods Alpha makes the contact bucket but it's booking it the wrong way, deeper into the hunter-killer drone racks. Nightbitch is swearing for real now. She jerks off the bolt knob, releasing a dozen unspent shells from her huge mag. When wild animals existed, this was a behavior of the perverts that watched them called stotting. Honest signaling. I can beat off this gun and still kills you, Night... I can beat off this gun and still kill you, Nightbitch is trying to say. Unbelievable alpha move. Turns out it's not a living shaft of God's rancid light at all. One of the big dogs gains sentience outside of business hours. It's clattering around and trying to hump shit. That's always the first thing they do. Then they start trying to save random pieces of trash they find. Big Night Bitch doesn't care about the big dogs. Just wants to end this bullshit before one starts doing Wally shit and makes her look bad. Night Bitch. I got visual in that contact. Fucking bot, man. I'm going to ice it. Control. You're cleared to take it out with ballistics. Night Bitch. Negative. I'm going in for melee. I want to watch it die. Control. Damn. Okay. Nightbitch sees a look in that dumbass big dog sensors when it notices her. She has it cornered, and she's just cutting it and cutting it and cutting it with her vibro knife. Who knows what it's thinking? 
Maybe it just doesn't want to die. Or maybe it's glad that it was a famous night bitch that got it. It learns how to die fast for something that wasn't alive an hour ago. Night bitch pops its detached pattern recognition flash into her mouth and sucks on it like a hard candy, which hasn't existed for over a million years, and that makes what she's doing more normal. The lithium grease and hits her bloodstream and gets converted to novel molecules by her kidney nanites. Eyes like pinholes and she's she and shit. Night bitch. I think I understand, Control. I think I get what it's all about. Control. Come again, night bitch? Night bitch. Horrible combat whips ass, and I'm the best at it. Control. Acknowledged. Night bitch engages flight and crash into the, crashes into the armor-plated drop ceiling of Walmart 7. The blunt impact feels like feathers landing on her back, and her collarbone briefly shatters under the strain, only to knit back together stronger within two seconds. With nothing but the force of her iron will and her leg-mounted anti-grav unit operating at high throttle, she plunges through the roof and into the open air. All the lights in the sky are hostile satellites. Stars aren't bright enough to get through the ground light anymore. Nightbitch is glad about that. She's heard about people gazing at the stars and makes her angry. Makes her wonder what they think is so special up there. She shoots a micro-grenade into a crumbling bank of worthless money flies into the sky, wreathed by purple arcs of plasma flame. Control. Why'd you shoot that building, Nightbitch? Nightbitch. It seemed like it'd be cool if it exploded. Control. Copy. You're cleared to blow up more shit if you want. Nightbitch. I will if I get bored again, I guess. The sky is crisscrossed with disgusting beams of light, chemtrails for a future without even the hope of thought reform. Among the beams of light but cloaked in darkness is the sums of mankind's hopes. Maxed out stats, biomod to hell and back. Awful creature cuckled by the god of war, waiting out her days in perfect violence after the end of time. The year is 2350-3050. The paving fucked remains of America grown under billions of hell is real billboards. No other cover exists from lethal levels of orbital sissy ray bombardment the latest combat zone is a human asshole enter the perfect mercenary night bitch